This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the government spent billions on health measures in response to the pandemic, officials worried whether enough would flow to the poor and vulnerable. Such people live in both urban and rural areas. My next guest coordinated the work to get millions of vaccines and other medications to community health centers. She's the director of the Office of Quality Improvement at the Health Resources and Services Administration and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Dr. Suma Nair. Dr. Nair, good to have you on. Good morning. Let's talk about that idea of community-based health centers, because in the larger sense of the words, every health care center is in a community of some type. What were you actually targeting here? This program was run through the Health Resources and Services Administration, and we provide grants to community health centers, 1,400 organizations all across the country and the territories. They have over 13,000 service delivery sites as well. Basically, they're community-based, patient-directed organizations that provide access to affordable, accessible primary health care services to folks all across the country. They serve over 29 million patients living in the United States. 90% of our patients are at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. Over 60% are racial ethnic minorities. And almost a quarter are best served in a language other than English. Wow. So the grants then are to actually keep the places open and operating? That's the main source of revenue? The grants are, on average, about 20% of a health center's operating budget. They also get reimbursement through public insurance, other grants. We provide grants, exactly as you said, for primary care services. A lot of our grant funding goes to support the workforce of the health center who provide those health care services. Got it. So it didn't go to places like Brigham and Women's and rich, well-funded that are attended by people of means, pretty much. Right. Nope. These are community-based organizations that are there to serve individuals who are medically underserved in communities across the country. All right. And tell us more about the program to make sure that all of these vaccines, when they did become available, but before that there were other measures and supplies and so forth that needed to get out. What was your indication of the fact that they didn't have them? And how did you go about making sure they did have them? Yeah, early on in the response, as vaccine became more broadly available beyond the initial indications for healthcare workers, we started to get a sense very early on that health center workforce weren't being vaccinated and they didn't have access to the vaccine. And then furthermore, as plans were to scale large community vaccination events, really to get through you know, high volumes of folks, which was critically important at the time, it became clear to us that What about the individuals who would never show up for those, who could never go through a mass vaccination, drive through clinic, show up at a local pharmacy? What were we going to do to support them and get to them, educate them about the availability of the vaccine, educate them on any questions or concerns they had about the vaccine, and then support them in getting their first dose and their second dose in those primary series? And so that really was, I think, the impetus for the administration to set up this program to have a direct supply of vaccines to health centers who have long-standing relationships with their communities and the patients that they serve. And so they knew where these individuals were and how to access them because of that trusting long-term healthcare relationship that they had built up. So when health centers had access to the vaccine, they could 
bring in their patients. Remember early in our vaccination efforts, you'd go on a website, you'd need to schedule your appointment, you'd go stand in line. Those are all things when you hear about our patient population, those may not work for them. And so health centers proactively reached out to their patients, scheduled them after the initial efforts to stand up really quick mass vaccination within the health center context, which is accessible, it's in their own community, their sites everywhere. They then, they, health centers, then took the opportunity to go out into the community. Mm -hmm. So when they got through the initial group of who wanted vaccines, they partnered with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, when it was time, schools, to go out um, and vaccinate individuals. We're speaking with Dr. Suma Nair. She is director of the Office of Quality Improvement at the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And was it important to get the employees and healthcare workers at these community centers vaccinated first to increase their ability to receive more people and deal with them and therefore maybe have greater throughput in the centers? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's essential that we vaccinated all of our healthcare workers and health centers equally important. They're the first line of defense in many cases for their patients. When their patients don't feel well or have questions, they come to a health center. You know, health centers across the country played an important role early in the pandemic of trying to help people understand the mitigation efforts, what precautions they needed to take so that they didn't get very sick and they didn't have to go to the hospital. So especially at a time where ERs were starting to overflow, it was important for health center providers to help patients who maybe weren't feeling well but were not bad enough to go to a hospital yet stay at home, isolate, and take care of themselves so that they didn't have to appear at the hospital. And in the pre-vaccine part of the pandemic, which was, I guess, most of 2020 now, if I can recall the calendar here, were you also involved in getting other types of supplies or whatever treatments were thought to be useful to these same centers? Yeah, absolutely. I think early in the pandemic, as we were noticing the lack of access to personal protective equipment, some of the challenges folks were facing across the country, we jumped into action to get a better sense of what was happening in our communities across the country. So we developed a survey to get a sense of what was the implication of the pandemic, closures, access to PPE, et cetera, on our health centers as organizations in certain places where they not, you know, some had school-based health center sites. They obviously weren't seeing any patients there. What were the impact on the health center staff? They also were getting infected. They had to take care of their patients. They had to take care of their families, right, as children were out of school. So the impact on health center staff, also challenges they had with obtaining PPE. There were still patients who still needed access to primary care, right, managing chronic diseases and other things. And so what health centers then did to flip the way they delivered care from in-person to virtual. There's a 6,000% increase in their ability to provide virtual visits in 2020, so continuing to provide critical access to care just in a different modality. Spoken truly like a HRSA person there on that last percentage. (laughs) And were there some logistics issues? Because in the rural areas, it might have been difficult to get these things physically shipped, whereas you could put them in a taxi cab for a poor neighborhood in New York City, for example. Yeah, exactly. So the vaccines, you know, they were fragile, right? They had very specific requirements around how to handle the vaccines. And I think early on, there were some questions, hey, these community-based organizations, do they have the large-scale freezer capacity and all the things that were necessary to handle vaccines? And health centers, to their credit, and using some of the COVID response dollars, they did have access. They did partner with organizations so they could get these vaccines, keep them at the right temperature, and share them. 
you know, it's an interesting point about the smaller, maybe more rural organizations who needed access. As we work through our program, one of the concerns that they faced, you know, we regularly checked in with our health centers and they said, we really want to vaccinate. I can't take a thousand doses. They were coming in trays of 1,100. I don't have them as many individuals who will come for care, but I still am a critical point of care for these individuals. So we set up a program within health centers where one hub health center would receive them. They'd break down the doses and then they'd partner and get them out to the other ones so that we could expand access into our smaller and more rural communities. And because you are a Sammy's finalist, I just wanted to ask you about your own career briefly and how you came to this particular type of work. Yeah, it was happenstance. I have to say, after graduate school, I have a background in public health nutrition and so always worked in a team of individuals focused on health care. Had the opportunity to join HRSA as a HRSA scholar, something like a President Management Fellowship, and got an opportunity to learn about HRSA's different programs and eventually, over time, focused on performance improvement, quality improvement, that kind of work. And then I landed up in the health center program in HRSA, working in the quality and data shop. So I think the experiences in data, using systems and technology, we also do partnerships, so partnering with our state-based organizations, our national organizations, and building a relationship with health centers focused on quality improvement over the last 15 years made it one, a no-brainer. We saw that health centers weren't getting access. And so when we were presented with an opportunity, we were going to figure out a way, uh, no matter what, as quickly as possible. And then I think that trusted relationship with the health centers on the other side, because as they say, right, you can build it, but if they don't come and utilize it, it's kind of a waste. And so it was a fair amount of work on the health centers for sure. But because of our trust relationship, They came along, they were working nights and weekends to make sure they could access the vaccine, get it out, share the data back. And that really, I think that relationship from start to finish is what had us be very successful in this endeavor. You like your work, don't you? Clearly. Dr. Suman there is director of the Office of Quality Improvement at the Health Resources and Services Administration and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, where you can find all of our Sammy's finalists. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. 
And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. 
I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.